All right, folks, let's have a little look. Get your Bibles out if you've got them. We're going to be looking at that passage in Luke. And uh, Luke 23, verse 16 onwards. We're going to have a look together now as we men move towards sharing communion together. Uh, This is uh, the first in a new series, but I'll talk about that in a moment. Before I talk about that, I want to, if we can bring up the uh, PowerPoint, please, June. I want to ask, uh, which, which of you here is good, who thinks they're good at avoiding things? Who thinks they're good at avoiding things? What do you mean, Matt, you might say before I answer that? Who here is good at avoiding things or jobs that are really important that need doing until the very last moment? Anyone good at that? Quite good at that? Yeah. We're all different. Some will do it immediately, others will avoid right to the last moment. What if I were to say, okay, instead of a sermon... Um, we're going to have a, uh, a country dance on the stage here now, and I need four volunteers to come up and join me. Who would be good at avoiding eye contact? <laughs> I'm just checking, because I might do it. I haven't decided. Yeah, okay, we'll leave it. Um, uh, perhaps some of you are good at avoiding things in sport, um, you know, like avoiding dodgeball or, or, or tackles in rugby. Who's good at avoiding someone you really don't want to talk to that you see coming down the aisle in the supermarket? Oh, suddenly, oh, this, this cornflower packet is really important. I better just examine that and keep my head down. They've gone. That's brilliant. Um, we don't do that. Um, who is uh, good at avoiding awkward topics of conversation? It's quite a British thing, that, isn't it? <coughs> no, we don't talk about that, thank you. We'll just move on, shall we? We avoid things all the time as humans. Sometimes I think it's good. In certain contexts, other contexts it's really not so good. There's one thing I want to start by saying at the beginning of this brand new series, this Lent series that we're in now, is that as those who want to grow in Jesus, if you're someone who says, I want to grow in Jesus, I want to be his disciple, then you cannot avoid cross. The moment of Jesus' suffering, his death, his resurrection, it is utterly central to our Christian faith. It's not actually the full story. It's not the only part of the story we should focus on. But it is a central moment in the principal story of God's salvation plan for you, for me, for this whole creation. And whilst we might often mention it and sing about it, it's quite possible actually to avoid looking deeply into it. Because Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, actually, the cross isn't easy to understand. We preach Christ crucified, Paul wrote, stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, the unjews. It's unpleasant, actually. It's painful. It's violent. It's uncomfortable to look at. It's not just a pretty necklace we might wear or a religious symbol or even a cliché. When we look at the cross deeply, we realise it's an abhorrent, painful and most uncomfortable thing to be at the centre of our faith. It's an offensive thing. You know, it offends our pride because it calls us to lay down our own heroic striving to be the one who wins. It offends our intellect, because it seems foolish 
And it calls us to humility and surrender and repentance. It offends our sense of tolerance because it claims to be the only way of redemption and it disrupts our comfort as it ruins our desire to avoid suffering and pain. It cannot prettify the cross. It can't make it comfortable. It was as repugnant a symbol as a hangman's noose or an electric chair. In fact, it was worse. And yet Paul writes to the church in Galatia, as for me, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So utterly central is the cross to Paul that again he says to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the reason he spells it out to the church in Colossae, For God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cross is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. It is the greatest act of grace and redemption. It is the thing that has brought our peace with God. And in fact, one day we'll bring peace to the entire created order. Friends, if you want to go deeper in your discipleship, if you really do want to be more like Jesus in a world that feels less like Jesus, then come to the cross. The truth is, if we come to the cross, it's not always comfortable. We will be changed. You know, it's possible be a Christian for decades and still not be truly changed and humbled by the cross. Not have allowed it to saturate and transform who we really are. And yet Jesus tells us that discipleship is cross-shaped. You want to follow me, take up your cross, he said, daily. So we must let the cross shape our thinking, our actions, our decision-making, our everyday discipleship. We must be formed at the cross new and afresh. So I invite you this Lent period to join us as we run up to Easter and come with humility again and dwell at the cross over the next few Sundays. We're going to be re-exploring the cross through the seven final statements of Jesus that he spoke while while he hung there suffering and dying. We're calling it cries from the cross, understanding the cross through the final words of Jesus. I'll read them quickly. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Another one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another one, Jesus said to his mother, woman, this is your son. And he said to the disciple, this is your mother. Again, Jesus said, I thirst. And then he said, it is finished. Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. This morning, as we move towards communion together, we're going to be reflecting on the very first sentence, which is, Father, forgive them they do not know what they do. Find it, verse 34 in the chapter that Pam read. So, the first thing I want to say is, as we begin to look at the cross, we cannot avoid being confronted by excruciating violence. The etymology of the word excruciating literally means from the cross. Cruciatus cross, crucifixion. And actually, it's been a bit like that. We haven't been able to avoid excruciating violence over this last 
week and a half, have we? In the most extraordinary way. It's been painful to watch the news. It's an appalling, unnecessary, wicked, tragic invasion and war that's now raging in Ukraine. It breaks our hearts. Now don't say that lightly. It really is abhorrent. It unsettles us. It feels appalling. We've seen tanks and armoured trucks roll into towns and villages and cities. We've seen airstrikes and cluster bombs decimate blocks of flats and houses and children's play areas. We've seen guns and bullets and dying bodies and dead bodies and suffering children and families. We've seen millions of people who the previous week were hairdressers and school teachers and butchers and office workers and baristas in cafes now hunkering in basements or fleeing from their life, for their lives or trying to pick up guns and shoot back. We've seen fathers hug the blood-stained bodies of their children and wave goodbye to wives and kids as they seek refuge whilst the men are forced to stay behind at the borders and return. Suffering, tears, fear, blood, pain, destruction, separation and death. None of us have been able to avoid the reality of excruciating violence that has come back to Europe in this way for the first time since the Second World War. Truth is, most of us have been able to avoid it, haven't we? Most of the time. This kind of violence has kind of felt separate to us in contemporary Western culture and society. But this has happened over the last week and a half has caused, caused us to confront the wickedness and suffering that we as humanity are actually so capable of inflicting. What we're witnessing is an appalling reminder of part of the human condition, wrenching us as it has from our relative comfort and forcing us to recognise the reality and power and darkness of sin that is embedded within us has been part of human existence from the very beginning, from the very first time that Cain picked up a plough or an agricultural instrument and smashed his brother, killed him with it. The Bible has been honest about violence and brutality that is part of our human condition. And it regularly arises. It comes from our desire to dominate, to have revenge, to control, to gain resources, to be in charge, for things to be my way, for my honour. It's the violence that separates us from relationships with one another and with God. It dehumanises, it destroys, and it breaks God's heart. The thing with violence is that violence so often begets further violence. One bloody wrong stirs up hatred and leads to another bloody wrong. Hatred then breeds more violence, which leads to more unforgiveness, more pain, more suffering, more violence. It's a cycle that can go on not just for days or weeks or months, but years, maybe even generations, maybe even centuries. It traps people who get caught up in, the, up in it in a relenting, unrelenting hatred and devastation. Friends, I want to say clearly here, I tragically believe there is a time to pick up arms and defend against a foe that sought to destroy you, your families and your freedom. So many in Ukraine, soldiers, 
and citizens alike that time is now, we cannot help humility, not knowing what it must feel like to be humbled by their bravery. Today our prayers are for the people of Ukraine and actually all who are suffering in the horror of the violence that has been wrought upon them through no choice of their own. Those that are fleeing, the million and a half at the moment refugees, it's going to be a lot more than that. Hopefully these humanitarian corridors can open up and let them through. We pray for them. We pray for the men that don't want to be picking up guns but have no choice. We pray for peace. Because our hearts also break that they're all caught up in this ever-escalating darkness of violence and hatred. The indiscriminate attacks we're witnessing lead to deep hatred. They lead to folks saying, we'll never forgive this. I read in an article stated this week that hatred is a treasure. Hate is a treasure, I read. Because it smoulders for years and generations and it fuels resistance. And I understand what the writer's saying, as I'm sure you do as well. I kind of understand what they're saying. But I want to say, friends, hate is not a treasure. Violence is not a virtue. They're stenches from the kingdom of darkness, from an enemy who from the beginning has always sought to kill and steal and destroy. Split us and break us and play on our hatred and our hurt and our revenge and our violence. Friends, we normally get to look away, but last week, last week's forced us to recognise there really is a problem rooted deeply within us as humanity. This excruciating violence confronts us with the painful truth. There is a deep darkness in this world and sin is a very real thing indeed. And it is a devastating problem. Deeply rooted in our human condition. So is it any surprise And I do not say this lightly, I say it tragically, that when 2,000 years ago, God, our loving creator himself, comes in an act of selfless love to rescue us from our condition. To come and help us. To step down from the glory of heaven and to walk among us. And instead of showing him our love and acceptance and gratitude, we turned our violence onto him. He came to give us life and we gave him hatred. God came in love and we chose to make a brutal spectacle of him as we nailed him to a cross. You see, that's what crucifixion is. It's a spectacle. It was designed to be a spectacle. A violent and degrading spectacle, so appalling, so degrading, so dehumanising, so excruciating that all who witnessed it would be deterred from any form of rebellion the Romans at that time that had mastered it in that way. They'd inherited it from other dominating empires. Having falsely arrested Jesus on lies, we then mocked him, we spat at him, we sarcastically toyed with him, and then we subjected him to a beating so appalling that we read today in our reading that he could barely carry the wooden crossbeam that he was being forced to shoulder. As we march him through the mocking and wailing crowds, And then, between two criminals, like a piece of dirt from the bottom of our shoe, we took him outside the city walls and we crucified him. 
In crucifixion, the nails were driven through the wrist. And it's interesting, the Bible does not go into the detail. The Bible wants us to understand what has happened here and why. But in that culture, everyone knew what it was. In crucifixion, the nails go through the wrists we found historically. That's where it was because there they can bear the weight of the body. And you are nailed to the vertical crossbar and it is lifted up and it is then attached, uh, nailed to the uh, horizontal crossbar, it's lifted up and attached to the vertical uh, post that would have been there. And as it clunks down, the weight of your body is taken through these nails. Because of this, the shoulders and the elbows can dislocate down. They twist the, ne- the, the, the legs and they bang a nail through the feet. It barely holds your weight. The weight is still coming on your wrist. And as it crushes into your ribcage, breathing is almost impossible. Every breath is so painful, it is agony. And so... Those that were suffering it would try to relent and get a little bit of breath. They would push with their legs to try and straighten up to take the pressure off the rib cage. But they would be pushing against agony, the nails in their feet. And the cycle would go on and on and on, barely able to breathe, every breath so painful. For some, wild beasts would start pecking at them. For others, it would be sunstroke. For most, it would be long and cruel suffocation and agony. Cross is a brutal spectacle of excruciating violence. We designed it. Humans came up with that. Sadly, in a revelation of our darker side of our nature, and I'm sorry it's so heavy today, forgive me, we'll get to Jesus' grace and mercy in a moment, but we must not look away yet. In a horrible sense of the darker side of of our nature, we hear in the reading today that the crowds came to look because crowds would enthusiastically come and watch this spectacle taking place. They loved the violence, they loved the thrill of it all. The way school kids still gather around a fight in the playground. There's a thrill, a rush. See, violence doesn't only appall us, there is a side in so many of us that is drawn to it. The blood sport the adrenaline, seeing suffering and violence. There's a reason why crowds came in their thousands to watch slaves and Christians fed to lions brutally, cheering, laughing. There's a reason why crowds still gather to watch men bloodily beat each other in a ring or why so many movies we call entertainment and enjoy are actually just filled with brutal violence. Here at the cross we encounter some of the worst of our human nature as Jesus suffers, barely able to breathe in such agony. We hear what? Mocking voices, laughter, games are being played, clothes are being snatched at. We witness our human disgraces, we hear insults and sneering. And in the moment of bloodshed and suffering and violence and murder of the perfect one, come to save us. The voice of prideful humanity is heard. He saved others. Let him save himself. He's God's Messiah, the Chosen One. This spectacle is a spectacle of our human pride and power, of our violence and our claim that humanity has no place for God, claim that our ways of human violence and control and power have victory, claim that the darkness has won. 
Surely there can be no coming back from such a moment. Surely when we look at it, there can be no forgiveness for such a thing. Surely only hate. For violence demands violence which demands violence. And this scene of unjust and disgusting violence surely demands recompense and justice and revenge. What will God's declaration be on a humanity so proud and brutal? What would come from the very belly of Jesus as he hangs there, the Lord of all, mocked, humiliated, naked, suffering in this unforgivable moment in the presence of those who are taking such pleasure in his pain? What righteous and utterly deserved judgment and condemnation would the creator of all the earth pronounce upon us all? Between the painful breaths, Jesus utters words that we simply could never expect. As Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And in some ways, these words are as uncomfortable and as excruciating as the violence itself. But here at the cross, we're also confronted by excruciating forgiveness. Here, when it's least deserved, friends, when it's least expected, forgiveness is spoken. Jesus asks his Father to forgive them, even as he suffers. In this excruciatingly uncomfortable moment, Jesus declares these words, we realise that a different kind of reality is breaking in. In fact, a king from a very different kingdom than the one of human violence and domination is speaking. Despite the sign declaring that here is the king of the Jews, mockingly hammered by Pilate above Jesus' head, people had decided that this suffering, weak, self-giving, barely-breathing man hanging on this foul cross was no king at all. And yet they really had no clue at all. Because he is a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. The one struggling to breathe right now is the one who sustains every breath that's ever been taken by every person and ever will. He is the Lord of all and the King of a kingdom so much more wonderful, so much more powerful than anything we have ever known in this world. And in this almost unbearable moment, the true King shows us all that there is another way and the way which we have chosen and the way which we have known. For whilst violence begets violence, here the king breaks the great escalating cycle by absorbing the violence upon himself. He breaks the great call for hatred and revenge by speaking forgiveness. He has become the scapegoat. All of our human violence and indignation is now on him. And the only blood he is allowed to be shed is his own. Here the kingdom of God goes against the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of man. Might, pride, authority and violent power they're met by Jesus with humility and love, self-giving and forgiveness. And as we encounter it, I don't know about you, but our human instincts feel it isn't It doesn't seem right. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And he 
calls us to do too. There is reasonable forgiveness. We can understand that proportionate forgiveness. There's even amazing forgiveness that we see sometimes in life. But this is excruciating forgiveness. And yet we're not called to the standards of this world and just to our own thinking, but to the standards of our King. Perhaps the most difficult of all commands, and I say this so lightly, I didn't prepare this for this morning, especially this is what we were going to speak on this morning. But it feels so uncomfortable to remind you that Jesus said to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Given all we've seen, you feel the weight of that call stick in your throat. To forgive even as we are forgiven. Surely he cannot mean that in all circumstances, we say. But as we hear him pray for forgiveness, as he suffers so brutally, so unjustly, so unfairly on that cross, I cannot help believe that he does. I cannot help but believe that he does. And I find that uncomfortable, and I'm not there yet fully. I'm still learning and letting Jesus transform me. My humanity wrestles with this. But I know some have got far closer than I have. I remember as a young man being so upset when I heard on the news years ago of an Amish community that were regularly abused and rocks thrown at them by the locals because of their way of life. And as they journeyed in a carriage one day, a local threw a stone and it went through the window and it killed a child that they were holding. I remember my heart breaking and being disgusted by it. And then the dad came on the TV and said, we've forgiven him. We forgive you. He spoke to the man. And I remember thinking, you have no right to forgive. That's not okay. You can't do that. But then I hear his voice. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I remember first reading about Martin Luther King Jr. He was far from perfect. But he came about in a time where black Americans were being treated so appallingly, being segregated, being abused by society, by the system of society and by individuals. How old ladies, I read, would be denied the vote time and time and time again, turned away and then beaten by sticks by officers of the law. How men and women and children died from violence and bombs and hatred by neighbours and those who should have been there to protect them in authority. And yet, Luther King declared that the law of revenge and hatred only leads to more violence. And so, he taught his people the way of non-violence and forgiveness. And I want to cry, no, you have no right to do that. No right to forgive. And then I hear his voice, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgiveness like this is the moment when the divine reality breaks in. Impossible, excruciating forgiveness is a moment when the kingdom of God breaks in, friends. However difficult we may find it, we're called to be a people of forgiveness, just like our King. And as we turn to the cross, we must allow ourselves to be confronted by it. We do not choose what Jesus says. We must listen, humble ourselves, and allow the Spirit to change us. This is discipleship. It's not always comfortable. Being a Christian means living the king's way, the way of the cross. Can I ask Andrew and the band to come back up in a moment? We're going to sing a song. 
But I want to say to you this morning that we've been confronted by the brutal spectacle of the cross and each week we're going to take a different angle. They won't always be as heavy. But it felt right this morning. And we realise that at the cross it was presumed that the principalities and powers of the kingdom of darkness and the ways of violence and revenge had made a spectacle of Jesus. And yet the Bible tells us Here on the cross, through his love and his excruciating forgiveness, Christ broke the cycle of violence, disarmed the powers and authorities, and made a public spectacle over them. 2 Colossians 15. The human way of violence and the forces of darkness tried to declare their victory, but here forgiveness was the highest word. Forgiveness was the last word, the divine word. And the true spectacle of the cross calls us all become a people of forgiveness, transformed through the renewing of our minds, the work of the Holy Spirit, the softening of our hearts to become more like Jesus, to live another way. So this morning, my prayer is that we may recognise and repent of our own ways of violence, all of us, hate and revenge. We may be utterly humbled by the uncomforting reality of Jesus' forgiveness. And yet the wonder of it, Forgive even us. May we begin to let the Spirit stir in us and challenge us to become more like him. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. To follow the way of the cross. I know it's not an easy word I bring today, but I finish with words from Isaiah 2, which actually, believe it or not, was one of the most quoted biblical texts by the early church fathers. Of all of them, this was it, kept coming up and up again. In a world that was full of violence and suffering and human pride and domination back then, they knew it so well. They recognised that in Jesus, the perpetual violence of Cain had been undone. That in the kingdom to come, there would be no more war or suffering or hatred or injustice. And that his followers were called in a hurting world to be those who lead the way in turning the swords back we read these words and we're going to sing I ask you to stand once I've read these we'll sing when I survey the wondrous cross and we'll do a short communion to finish in the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and all nations will stream to it many peoples will come and say come let us go to the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob he will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low, and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. Amen.